people of Earth. This is it. This is our final fundraising pitch. September is nearly over, which is a bit of a scary thought, actually, when you think of weather-wise and what's coming in Edmonton. With the end of September comes the end of our drive for patrons. And I want to say to everyone who has already donated, thank you. Uh, You're amazing. I love you. I am so grateful for your support. And to the people who are on the fence who have been meaning to donate but haven't gotten around to it yet, it's very simple. Just head to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, fill out the form, and become a monthly donor. You'll be joining hundreds of other folks who are financially supporting what we do here at Progress Alberta. You are helping us organically create a left-wing news platform here, something that is just so needed in this province. Go to progressreport.ca slash patrons, fill it out, please become a patron. Credit cards aren't your thing. Email me at duncank at progressalberta.ca and we can figure something out. But yeah, uh, become a patron. We really appreciate it. This is our last pitch. Thank you so much. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, and we're back here in Amiskwati, Wiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, here in Treaty 6 territory, and we have a fantastic guest today to speak with us. His name is Martin Lukacs. He is a journalist and writer who has covered politics for more than a decade from a refreshing and unapologetic left-wing perspective. You can see him most often in The Guardian. But today he is with us because of a timely new book that has been released during election season. It's called The Trudeau Formula, Seduction and Betrayal in an Age of Discontent. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Duncan. So we're recording this the afternoon of September 11th, I believe. I didn't see you at the Climate Strike March, but I understand you were there. I was there. I was there. Um, I know you're from Montreal, which is apparently just going ham today, like hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. I've heard about half a million people. Um, but here in Edmonton, we also managed to get thousands of people in the streets. What were your kind of initial impressions? Uh, I mean, I was at the legislature for about 15, 20 minutes before I rushed off for an interview with the mainstream media. But I was surprised and really uh, pleased with the turnout. It must have been four or 5,000 people, a ton of young people, a ton of radical signs, um, capitalism mentioned more than once socialism as a response mentioned more than once as well so it was nice it was nice to see especially in the heart of you know supposed oil country um there is the growing kernel of resistance my favorite sign so far of of any of the climate strike events has been the uh leonardo dicaprio's girlfriends need a future sign i don't know if you've seen that one (laughs) I haven't seen that one, no. Uh, But there have been a ton of great signs, and the kids are super funny and creative and awesome. But that's not why we're here today, Martin. We are here today to talk about your book. And um, I have a two-year-old. I read a lot less than I um, probably should to keep my brain kind of ticking. Um, But I have to say it's extremely good, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Very Um, kind of you. It is... It's not just polemic or political theory. There's actual reporting in there. You've kind of traveled all over the country to do the work for this book. And I think it shows in the perspectives you're you're able to get in there. Um, I know it just kind of recently came out. I don't know if you've had a chance to kind of check out the reviews, but I did, I did pick out uh, a lovely review from Amazon. Uh, the, the Amazon review comes from someone named Health Professor. 
He gives it a five out of five stars. And we're just going to leave with a review just so people, I mean, we're going to give you the chance to give your thesis of the book and what it's all about in a second. But if this review is actually like quite a good encapsulation of, of what the book is all about. Let's hear it. It starts off like this. This is a devastating analysis of how the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau continues to be even more popular with corporate Canada to the detriment of most Canadians than were the Harper Conservatives. On every, on every issue that is important to Canadians, pharmacare, childcare, climate change, precarious work, and others, the Liberal Party agenda under Trudeau is closely aligned with the interests of the rich and powerful. When will Canadians ever learn? That sounds like I might have written it. But I definitely didn't. You did not. You're not. You're not like salting false reviews on Amazon. Not yet. Okay. Well, good. But but like, I mean, I'm that that was the health professor's take on your book. Why don't you give our audience your kind of like capsule review, your your like brief thesis of what your book is all about? Well, he did a pretty good job. But the Trudeau formula to me distilled is the way the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau, was able to talk this very good game about transforming society on behalf of the 99%, while quietly reassuring the 1% that things wouldn't fundamentally change. And in many ways, um, you know, under Trudeau, this was a kind of Instagram-era adaptation of a very long-standing liberal formula. The liberal government, the liberal party in many ways, has operated as this kind of, you know, managerial establishment party that is able to kind of, like, absorb whatever rising discontent there is in yeah. Canadian society. Yeah, I think, I think we called it uh, off-pod, like, a shock absorber. In a, it, I call them, for yeah, the, I call for them, the, I call them the great establishment shock absorber. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when necessary, especially when pushed by social movements or by a much stronger NDP... They make selective concessions, um, you know, adopt, you know, symbolic postures, co-opt the language of social movements, um, with the ultimate aim, though, of only giving as much as the system can manage and no more. Um, and, you know, this, this, this technique of rule dates back really to William Lyon Mackenzie King um, and has had since then, really, the aim of basically stealing the political oxygen from the left. You know, Mackenzie King talks in the 30s about, you know, to talks with Winston Churchill about how he just can't let the CCF steal the, quote, ground of the left. And this is like a reoccurring theme in, in Canadian politics where liberal prime ministers and, you know, their preferred strategists are highly attuned to that progressive hunger in Canada and have, you know, kind of cannily channeled it, played to it, uh, operated as a kind of safety valve. But ultimately, they operate to as a kind of bulwark uh, against any of the kind of fundamental change that I think majority Canadians want. And this isn't, I mean, this is a feature, not a bug of pretty much all kind of liberal democracies, right? You can even go not to not even democracies. Let's go to 1830s France, like the July Revolution, Les Mis, right? Like that was a popular revolution uprising in the streets that essentially got um, corralled and, and directed into uh, installing a new king yes. from, from like a minor line, right? And it was... This is this. I mean, history keeps repeating in this case. Um, yeah, I tell a, I tell a story in the in the book 
which to my mind is a kind of distillation of this of this you know technique of rule. Uh, it's from a fictional book, The Leopard by uh, Lampedusa, and he tells a story about 19th century Italy, which is at a moment of like great upheaval. And in fact, in many ways, the history of Italy and, and Canada are very similar in the kind of political formations that develop. But it's a moment of upheaval, and uh, Lampedusa has his aristocratic protagonist, Tancredi, um, kind of conferring with members of his besieged class. Um, and he basically tells them, if we want things to remain the same, things will have to change. <laughs> if we want things to remain the same, things will have to change. And I think that's a kind of perfect distillation of the spectacle of um, you know, bold pronouncements and you know, splashy um, progressive postures that seemed to many Canadians to um, you know, foreshadow this disruption of politics as usual, but in fact, ultimately just shored up you know, the existing disparities in wealth and power in this country. I mean, yeah, my, my line around a kind of liberal, the liberal political project is that broadly speaking, it's just about, you know, enough social programs and enough, enough gesturing to the people to keep the like pitchforks and the guillotines and the torches away. Um, and no more. That's exactly it. And I, I tell a story in the, one of the early chapters, um, where basically it's almost as unvarnished as that, uh, in terms of the message that Trudeau has for the corporate elite. Um, you know, he gives a speech, which really wasn't reported by any of the mainstream media, a few months before he was elected in 2015, and he's speaking at the Canadian Club of Toronto, which is like the ritziest uh, lunch and speaker series of Bay Street. And he basically tells them, like, guys, look, like, we're in trouble. Canadians don't really have faith in the economic system anymore. Uh, change is coming. Um, if you guys don't settle for me as the most effective manager of that, then Canadians are, quote, going to begin to entertain more radical options. So it's, that, that's definitely the pitch. It's like it's either me or the pitchforks. Um, and I think the co corporate elite in this country has tended to oscillate between the conservatives uh, and the liberals. And the liberals tend to be their preferred, more enlightened, responsible managers. I mean, as we saw under, under Harper, and we can talk about that, like there was just so much resistance that was provoked, much of which I think ultimately uh, was muted and um, dis you know, disorganized uh, under Trudeau. Um, and I think that is one of the ultimate hoped for outcomes of the you know, aforementioned Trudeau formula. Well, I think one of the best parts of your book is is the work that details the kind of extremely deep relationships between kind of Canada's corporate aristocrats, the billionaire class, and the Liberal Party. Since I mean, you kind of start at the like late era Trudeau is uh, Trudeau the Elder is kind of where you start, about all the way up to present day, right? And the thing that really stuck out to me was this organization that, I mean, I'd kind of dimly been aware of it, formerly called the Canadian Council of Chief Executives. It's called uh, something else now. What's it called? Business Council of Canada. This very anodyne named organization, which is, you can make a case, has been like one of the most powerful political organizations to have ever existed in modern history of Canada, but no one knows about it. No one talks about yeah, it. It, yeah. it operates in the shadows. Yeah. The, the, the what the hell are they? The founder of Davos actually calls it the most effective CEO-based organization in the world. So it is basically a, essentially a popular front of the biggest 150 corporate 
uh, corporations in Canada. Um, and one of the requisites for membership, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, is that CEOs have to make themselves available for an in-person meeting twice a year. Um, and so this is basically where the ruling class of Canada coordinates their politics. Um, and the Business Council of Canada, for about three decades uh, of their existence, uh, was run by a guy named Thomas uh, D'Aquino, um, who was like an incredibly uh, adept lobbyist for this corporate fund. In fact, at one point when Peter Newman did an interview with him, he was asked if he was okay even being referred to as a lobbyist. And I think his response was, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that, you know, the Pope is a lobbyist, <laughs> so it kind of gives you a sense of his uh, of his of his hubris and his, but also of a sense of the power that he that he and the the Business Council of Canada wielded. And yeah, they definitely maintain a very quiet presence. They have an office in Ottawa that you know doesn't have any of the imposing presence of Parliament, which is just a few blocks away. Um, but they have been very effective at organizing not just to react to government policy, but to actually uh, write it themselves. Um, they usually set up, you know, CEO-based councils where they develop policy, and they often feed that to the federal government. So it's, it's literal, like, stonecutter shit from The Simpsons, right? Like, they keep the metric system down. They made Steve Gutenberg a star. They got, they, they brought in the GST. I think they claim credit for bringing in the they GST. They brought in the GST. They, they, they literally, word for word, rewrote the competition laws in this country they basically turned the hand of Mulroney and turned him from a, a you know an opponent of free trade agreements to a you know untrammeled uh, advocate for them they uh they helped bury and dismantle uh Trudeau's national energy program um Kyoto they were instrumental in kind of you know they were instrument they that was one of their that was one of their few defeats okay okay um and that had in part to do because Chrétien was just you know, he didn't care about the environment, but he was hell bent on proving that he was uh, in front and ahead of the United States of America. You got to do that, sir. If you're a liberal, you got to do the, the ceremonial, like image politics. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, no, Kretchen in many ways predates and prefigures the, you know, climate kind of hypocrisy of, of Trudeau. Um, but what was interesting is that under Harper, um, the Business Council of Canada was kind of dislodged from their, you know, um, position as the rightful arbiters of Canadian policy. Like, Harper didn't give a crap. Like, he, he his allegiances were elsewhere. He didn't think he owed anything to Bay Street, you know. And uh, they were kind of frozen out. In the first few years of, of Harper's government, the Business Council of Canada basically had a meeting. And they... We're discussing how to deal with the deficit. The, the, the room was canvassed. And basically all the executives said, raise my taxes, right? So it was an interesting moment where a lot of the leading, you know, titans of corporate class in Canada were like, something probably needs to give. Like the financial recession has hit people hard. Um, you know, we could be in for another housing bubble in Canada, um, another crash, um, and they had a very keen sense of this, the rising anger at the elite, you know, at this hoarding class. And what was interesting is that they approached Harper 
And he was just like, hell no, I'm, I'm, I have nothing to do with taxes. Oh, and I feel like Walter Subcheck here uh, talking about the nihilists. I mean, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, say what you will about the tenets of national socialism, but at least it's an ethos. Harper wasn't willing to raise, I mean, fucking raise taxes on the rich, obviously good. Um, but Harper refused because he thinks taxes are bad. I mean, he was just, yeah, I mean, he was a, just totally ideologically dead set against it and but what was interesting is the corporate class was like this is what we need to manage discontent and they actually came out at that point and started like overtly grumbling about this fact uh which you've never really seen and, and then harper the harper responded by just like um completely rebuking these corporate executives so at a certain point many of them just started kind of bidding their time waiting for uh, someone to emerge from the Liberal Party who could, you know, make that pivot that I think a lot of the corporate class in this country thought that they needed, which was a politician who would have a kind of softer touch, who could speak to people's grievances, who could, you know, make a, an effort or make a um, affected effort at dealing with inequality, at um, addressing climate change, at making the semblance of moves towards addressing indigenous rights. Um, and Justin Trudeau was definitely their man. Mm. Okay. So before we get into our next subject, I just want to play some tape for you. It is uh, two straight minutes of Justin Trudeau saying that 2015 will be the last election held under first past the post. We are committed to ensuring that the 2015 election will be the last federal election using first past the post. We made it very, very clear in the last election uh, that if we were elected, uh, we would ensure that this would be the last election under First Past the Post. Mr. Speaker, in the last election, Canadians overwhelmingly voted for parties that had committed to moving beyond First Past the Post. Uh, the fact of the matter is, we committed uh, to making this last election the last one uh, in this country under First Past the Post. Canadians heard loudly and clearly that we made the commitment that this was going to be the last election uh, held under the first-past-the-post system, and we are committed to doing that. And we propose real change that will make this the last election under first-past-the-post, ending first-past-the-post. Uh, that's exactly the commitment we made, and that's what we're moving forward with. This election will be the last one held under First Past the Post. This must be the last election under First Past the Post. Okay, so you get the point there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the NDP did a count, and it was upwards of 1,800 times that Justin Trudeau promised that they would change the uh, elect electoral system Hand, first hand, and last time hand over heart pinky swear definitely going to be the last election under first past the post i mean i see this moment like just justin trudeau's broken promise around electoral reform as the moment uh of the political awakening really uh where the scales fell off the eyes of so many kind of like you know well-meaning center-left people who who paid attention to politics mm -hmm. right like this was the first kind of really obviously cynical deeply big l liberal play uh, of that was like just just a slap in the face to people who had voted for him um you know especially organizations like lead now mm -hmm. lead now or or other similar organizations or even unions who had been like, well, I guess we'll hold our nose and vote for the liberals. Doesn't matter. We just got to get Harper out of there. We'll get electoral reform, whatever. 
I mean, you talk about it in your book, but this is essentially the like crassest political, nakedly like opportunistic political move like he's kind of made. Would you would you agree? Well, I mean, poof, it'd be hard to pick, <laughs> hard to pick just one, but it was definitely. I agree that it was definitely the one that I think shocked most people in the mainstream. You know, soft kind of progressive voters who I think had been won over by it. So I'm like lead now, you know, uh, which is, you know, quite activisty. They had totally been taken in by it. Um, and this is actually a policy, uh, a policy pledge that, that the, that the liberal government, liberal party has been making for a hundred years, <laughs> right? They've been, they've been walking it, they walked it back exactly a hundred years ago as well. I think in 1917 or 1918, but it's true that it was, um, utterly cynical the way in which they, um, walked it back um, and we, we, I think, got to see some of the way they try to manage. Um, it's kind of funny because, like, um, I actually tacked it on, like, near the end of the book because I was, like, I hadn't written it. For, for, for people on the left, I think it was, like, not, it was not, I hate that phrase of, like, the left, not surprising. But it's, like, one we often use. And it, it, I think it's good, like, emotionally not to fall into that trap where you're, like, you, you continue being shocked by things as you should be. But I think the, the, um, it was clearly in the cards, right. Mm-hmm. From early on, it, it, it just seemed that it would so, it would be so antithetical to the liberal government's interest to actually advance a policy that would so undermine their own standing in the electoral system. They had won so many elections under first past the post to, to think that they would get rid of the system. Yes. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, it's an interesting question, though. I think it is this question of strategic voting, right, which I think was at the heart of why they made this ploy, made this pitch mm-hmm. to this kind of broad center left soft progressive coalition, right, which is that like, you might not like us, we might not be your first choice, but we can beat Harper one, and two will implement uh, electoral reform. Though I think it's been more than that, because I, I, th- I think that the the democratic reform piece of Trudeau's program was really the key way in which they won the um, the mantle of the change agent, right, and were able to outflank the the NDP alongside the tax hike on the one percent and the deficit spending like maneuver. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Paul Wells who said that there was like not a single democratic itch, reform itch that the Trudeau government didn't scratch. Um, like it was the the list was long, right? Like it was. They also talked about reform within the Democrat within the Liberal Party, which I think was really important for progressive rank and file membership of the party. They talked about the the reform that was going to come for the civil service, you know, which was hugely important for so many people who had suffered under under the hand of Harper. Um, but but the way in which they tried to maneuver their way out of the out of the promise was kind of astonishingly cynical, right? Like they. They're, you know, they they kicked off consultations publicly. They kicked off the parliamentary committee hearings, and then they also had, you know, liberal MPs doing hearings of their own. And in all cases, there was an overwhelming consensus for proportional representation. And uh, when that r- result didn't suit them, they just like restarted another round of of consultations. <laughs> and I, I it totally reminded me of this um, of this Bertolt Brecht quote. Um, which is like, you know, it's basically like saying that Canadians had forfeited the confidence of the government and could only win it back with a more favorable consultation result. <laughs> um, 
And then they had this like absurd kind of like pop psychology survey in which they didn't ask people which system they actually wanted, but they asked them like, you know, what, what values they ascribe to. Um, and then when that didn't work to their benefit, then they just... I think I think it was he just sent he dispatched one of his junior female ministers Karina to Gold, like, I think. Exactly, to take the take the hit and just said go go eat this in public. I mean, this is all to say that strategic voting isn't real. Um you know, no one at the riding level has a, enough data to properly catch the knife and know who the best candidate is to beat the conservatives. Just simply go out and vote for the best left-wing candidate in your riding. God willing, it's a new Democrat. If it's not, well, that's on the new Democrats. But like, strategic voting isn't real. It's 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 just another what way. Is, it's it's it, just it, another it's just another way of saying voting liberal but preferring something else. Yes, but I I think that I mean we another name for strategic voting could just be. I mean, it's effectively a muzzle. It's a muzzle tactic, right? Like um, that's I think the more accurate way of looking at it. And it's a it's a muzzle tactic that's deployed by liberals across the world, right? Where they uh, in situations where they have exposed themselves as corrupt establishment parties, they simply turn to their right uh, and invoke the specter of the threat of the ascendance of a right-wing party. And they just use that to bludgeon the left into uh, not offering a full-throated critique, right? And like we saw this in Ontario, where you know, in the two weeks before the provincial election, the NDP looked like they had a chance at defeating Wynn, right? Uh, the premier. And they, the liberal government, embarked on this, like, smear campaign where they went harder against the NDP than they did against the possibility of a Doug Ford government. And, of course, we got a Doug Ford government and with all the disaster that has befallen the province since. Um, but that, to me, revealed that uh, ultimately the alliances of the Liberal Party are often closer to the Conservatives. The affinities are are, are closer. And, um, and strategic voting operates as this attempt to kind of hem in and imprison, you know, leftists from developing ultimately uh, an alternative that can defeat uh, not just the right, but also the Liberals. Mm-hmm. And I think this politics of voting so that the people you like the least don't get in, that is um, unfortunately like a hallmark defining feature of our politics and one that essentially means that there we don't actually get to talk politics when we do it. And it, it results in this kind of extremely stunted body politic where we don't actually get to talk about what it is that we fucking want when an election happens. It's all about, well, these guys are bad. We got to defeat these bad guys. And and it, it makes me extremely frustrated. OK, moving on. But last thing, hold on, hold on, there's one, one more thing, too. Like, um, it, it, it all, I mean, I I like this point about that you make that it like prevents us from thinking politically because the dynamic that gets most missed in this talk about the liberals as a lesser evil that you have to strategically vote for is that I actually think that liberal politics are not so much a lesser evil as they are the pathway to greater evil, right? Like their policies are the ones that pave the way for the right to come into power generally, um, and especially in a moment of rising, you know, fascism and, and surging extreme right, like as we've seen, the, the, the liberal center, as we saw in the 30s in Europe, just simply can't hold, right? Um, so it's it, strategic voting is, I think, also effectively an alibi for paving the way for the right. Um, that kind of politics can't be on the right can't be defeated by the liberal center. I mean, we're seeing under liberal under under the liberal government of the last four years a spike in far right extreme activity 
Um, I think there's you know three times the number of white nationalist groups in operation since 2015, right? Um, so I don't think the liberals have an answer for that kind of politic. Uh, and to double down on it, I think, is to only engender an even more, uh, even bigger explosion on the right down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best chapters in the book, in my mind, is um, you know the reconciliation industry chapter, the one that's uh, except excerpted in the Walrus, right? If people want to go read this, by all means, just Google Martin Lukacs's name, reconciliation industry Walrus, and you'll find it. Um, I mean, Justin Trudeau says the word reconciliation an awful lot, but his government's actions on the ground belie the rhetoric. And I, I mean, now that's a common theme uh, in your book, <laughs> um, but it's especially insidious in the context of, you know, Justin Trudeau's relationship with, you know, the various indigenous nations of Canada. I would say that in, in this case, it's not only that the, it's not just that the, the, the actions belie the rhetoric, but that reconciliation has operated as this elaborate, symbolic ruse for uh, a kind of shift in late-stage colonialism in this country. Um, and, yeah, I think in many ways the, the reconciliation politics of Trudeau throw into relief, like, all the favored tactics of the Liberal Party. Um, I mean, basically all of Trudeau's personal skills have come to bear on you know, the symbolic spectacle that we've seen. Yeah, you've got a line in here. Uh, I think it's in the context of Justin Trudeau going and sitting cross-legged in a teepee uh, that was uh, set up in protest on during the uh, Canada Day celebrations for mm. 150. Your line here is, you know, reducing politics to the posture of an individual, the art of symbolic statecraft, is a skill that Trudeau and his liberal team have mastered. Yeah, I mean, so we that was just that moment where he kind of like took his shoes off, uh, of course, he showed up in a denim jacket, which he always does at, at any kind of especially sensitive political moment. Um, took his shoes off, sat in circle with these indigenous youth protesters, uh, took the feather, you know, told them they were that he was there to listen. And then after he stepped out of the TP, of course, Gerald Butts, his BFF and prime advisor, tweeted out a photo and said something like, you know, this is the first of many steps on this long journey. And then, of course, he co-opted the hashtag that these you know young protesters were, were using uh, hashtag reoccupation and it was just kind of like one among many of these kind of moments that were offered to canadians as this kind of like reconciliation reel you know where where trudeau was this living embodiment of like the changes that canada was going to be making in terms of resetting the relationship with indigenous peoples of course there were the tearful apologies um mohawk scholar audra simpson has this great term she calls him the the weeper in chief but when you got down to it my argument is that what you saw from from Trudeau and then basically the kind of woke kind of capital that got in behind him was less a sea change than a, a shape shift, right? So they recognized that Idle No More had fundamentally transformed the cultural landscape of Canadian society, and it really required a, a shift in, in statecraft. I mean, I think the shift in reconciliation politics was in large part a response to the growth in power of Indigenous rights, uh, especially in the aftermath of Idle No More. And I think that, you know, the kind of organic intellectuals in the Liberal Party and in the state realized that they couldn't 
continue with um, the status quo when it came to indigenous um, issues. Like, you know, even 10 years ago in the last liberal government, the Minister of Indigenous Affairs had gotten memos that said to the effect, like, you know, keep a low profile on indigenous issues because that creates an environment for reasonable policy approaches. Basically, they were saying, like, keep the Indians out of sight and out of mind, right? And that that was completely shattered by Idle No More. So there needed to be a shift, and the shift was, okay, we'll accept a new kind of public consensus when it comes to indigenous issues. Like, we'll leave behind kind of overt racism, we'll change the names of institutions, we'll, like, smudge before every, you know, board meeting or committee meeting. But fundamentally, when you look at the actual policies, um, very little to nothing has changed. Um, and what the liberals did to disguise that was just this like frenzy of activity. So there's a stat from the Yellowhead Institute, which is this terrific new indigenous rights think tank, um, where they calculated that if all the bills and legislation that the Trudeau government was preparing had passed, it would represent 40% of all legislation relating to indigenous peoples since 1867. So there was just this like dizzying amount of activity, but the end result of it was to actually um, deep six the land rights, um, ter- the, the treaty rights of indigenous peoples, and basically accomplish what the Canadian state has been trying to accomplish for 140 years, which is consign indigenous peoples to postage stamp size land bases and give them effectively the rights, the self-government rights to administer their own poverty. Um, That's the model, right? Well, and and you've got a line in here that I think kind of really sums that up, right? Reconciliation wasn't the unfinished business of confederation. It was the unfinished business of colonization. Yeah, and it... I think all of the the energies of Trudeau's team and the liberal government and the state was brought to bear in terms of using reconciliation politics as a way to manufacture the consent of indigenous peoples for this agenda and also more broadly to try to win Canadians over to um, to support this agenda, which ultimately was very different from what Harper was trying to do. Harper was just a lot less successful at it. Yeah, and ultimately all this talk of reconciliation, all of these, these bills, all this activity has not resulted in giving land back to indigenous people. Right. No. And that's the point. Like, um, it was intended, I think it is intended to act as a kind of preemption of the kinds of changes that we need fundamentally to, um, achieve decolonization in this country. So nowhere in the legislation is there talk of restitution of land uh, of reparations, um, of sh- the sharing of resources. The, the thing that is always so- sought by the government in the agreements they sign with indigenous peoples is what's called certainty. So basically the certainty of control over land and territorial jurisdiction. Um, in fact, there's a speech from Jody Wilson-Raybould, um, who in many ways was the architect of this um, this incarnation of uh, colonial policies um, where she gives a speech to the business uh, business chamber of commerce in BC and she's like she repeats the, cert- the word certainty 24 times in like the span of a like a short speech um, and that's basically like the um, the money line for the corporate class like that indigenous rights pose this 
fundamental threat to certainty for corporate resource extraction, for accumulation, and the end goal of the state, the Canadian state, for 130 years has been to ensure the extinguishment of land rights and ensuring Canadian control over, um, Canadian cer- certainty over the land. Well, well this question of, of manufacturing consent and is, is a thing, uh, you know, a question that uh, that's at the heart of, you know, a major political issue that has not gone away over the past uh, however many years, and that is, you know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And, you know, the question of consultation versus consent is one that has not been resolved, uh, you know, in the courts or in the streets. And, um, you know, I think Canadians have to learn that at the end of the day, if, if, if an Indigenous nation says no, that means, like, you can't do this project on their territory, then then ultimately you can't or you have to do it somewhere else. But I think, I think, and I think Canadians are starting to learn that that indigenous communities and nations saying no is actually to their benefit, right? Like, it's not like indigenous communities anywhere really are opposed to bad projects. Um, they're overwhelmingly opposed to precisely the kind of projects, mining, oil and gas, uh, clear-cut logging, that Canadians increasingly themselves realize are not the path forward for this country. Um, and I think there's a great deal of fear-mongering that happens, not just from the right, but also the liberal center, uh, when it comes to what what might happen to our economy if Indigenous peoples actually were granted the right to say no. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a, I spoke to a source, an environmental lawyer who was lobbying the liberal government to, to do precisely what they said, which was implement the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights. And um, when they were passing uh, this environmental bill, C-69, when they were writing it, excuse me, uh, she was lobbying for the, to assure, ensure the inclusion of um, the right to free, prior, informed consent over decisions on their territories. And the minister, the chief of staff to the minister of the environment basically told her, no, we can't do that. It, it would be unworkable. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to get a single project built. Right, which is just, I mean, it just goes to show how um, deeply entrenched, not just among the right, but among liberals, is this notion uh, of, you know, the, the, the savage Indian basically standing as an obstacle to the progress of civilization. Um, but I think Canadians, thankfully, are completely uh, moving in a different direction. I also think that in your book, a bit of analysis that I have not read anywhere else in kind of the Canadian discourse is your analysis of Jody Wilson-Raybould and the reason for her eventual decision to split with Trudeau over SNC-Lavin and to defy the liberal and break with the liberal government. And it does go back to this indigenous governance, indigenous governance stuff. Um, can you kind of walk us through that as well? I think that's something that people, more people need to know about. Yeah. So it's interesting that in this country, unlike say in the States, uh, we have not been able to have, I think, frank conversations about, um, someone like Jody Raybould Wilson. Like I, I, I think to like the debate in the U S democratic, uh, primaries, right where a figure like Kamala Harris um, has been, you know, totally open to critique about questioning whether she, in fact, is a progressive, uh, was a progressive attorney, right? Um, 
And it's interesting that Jody Wilson-Raybould herself um, comes from a very similar background, right? So she worked as a crown attorney, right, uh, in the Vancouver downtown east side. Es- essentially, like, you locking, know... Locking people up for drug use and stealing and stuff. Yeah, yeah for, for petty crimes, you know, uh, in primarily indigenous peoples. Um, so she was, you know, working from from her the beginning of her career, aiding and abetting the state agenda. And so to a lot of people who have worked in, in as activists in Indian country, her rise to the top of the Liberal Party was not entirely surprising. Um, they saw her as someone who had worked closely with the Crown's agenda vis-a-vis Indigenous peoples. And, you know, in many ways, she she had developed this blueprint for uh, a very narrow uh, kind of affirmation of Indigenous rights that, to many Indigenous activists, land rights activists, uh, effectively aided and abetted the long-term goals to, of extinguishment of land rights and of gaining certainty over land, right? Would it be fair to characterize that as the, like, the municipalization? Yeah, that, that the municipalization, the, the turning of, you know, indigenous nations into ethnic municipalities, you know, with fourth order kind of powers delegated by the state, but having no control over the their traditional territories, right? So she was very much a a, a, a part of that kind of policy worldview. And it was for that reason that she was you know, initially scouted by Paul Martin, then mentored by her, then recruited by Justin Trudeau. And she was in some ways kind of like the crown jewel of their reconciliation agenda. She was the one who helped them burnish their image as, um, you know, as progressive on this issue. And she was the one who was actually often carried water for them. She was the one who kind of delivered the harsh news. So for instance, when, you know, Trudeau won all this praise internationally for um, promising to implement the UN declaration, it was her who was sent to an Assembly of First Nations meeting to tell the chiefs that actually implementing the UN declaration is unworkable and yeah. it's not going to happen, guys. You get to eat it, yeah, essentially, <laughs> basically. And um, and what I what I think is fascinating is that the the liberals had not just with her, but they had cultivated the alliance of several high-profile, establishment-friendly Indigenous leaders like, you know, Phil Fontaine and Willie Littlechild and Mary Ellen Terpel, Ed John. And these people were part of manufacturing this consent among Indigenous peoples. Um, But when resistance started to build up to Trudeau's kind of reconciliation agenda and the legislative aspect of it, which she had had a hand in writing, um, it was interesting how it played out. Through the summer of 2018, Russ Dybo and many former Idle No More activists ran this campaign that basically turned the tide. And it got to the point where many of these establishment-friendly Indigenous leaders themselves distanced themselves from the Liberal government. So what we had in the fall of 2018 was basically Jody Raybould Wilson, Jody w- Wilson-Raybould as the last Indigenous, high-profile Indigenous person standing next to Trudeau's agenda. And... I think that she realized that she had to rehabilitate her image. Um, It's interesting how when the SNC-Lavalin affair broke uh, in the winter of 2019, a lot of the mainstream media kind of scoured her statements that she had made in the fall of 2018 to find the first inklings of criticism, you know, of the liberal government. But what's interesting is that the first day that she criticized the liberal government was the day after basically her legislation had been defeated 
at a meeting that I attended and describe in the book, an AFN special assembly meeting where Carolyn Bennett like spoke to, you know, a room full of assembled chiefs and literally a, you could feel in the room uh, a kind of revolt brewing, right? It was akin to what we experienced, what we saw in 2012 when chiefs marched on Parliament Hill and the mainstream media realized finally that like something was happening, namely Idle No More. And it was the only, there was a conspicuous absence in the room that day at that meeting. It was Jody Wilson-Raybould. And the next day in Saskatchewan, she started distancing herself from the, from the, from the liberals. So I think that her eventual stance, independent stance on SNC-Lavalin had everything to do with the way in which she realized that she had to rehabilitate her image in Indian country. And, um, and what she did has effectively done that. Right, so she's been really romanticized and heroized, especially among white liberals in this country, but among a, a broad sweep of indigenous peoples as well, who were confronted with the choice of like, okay, like Justin Trudeau or 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 Jody, right? And so, of course, many many went with her. Um, but it just goes to show, I think, ultimately, the lesson of all this is that indigenous resistance to you know the Trudeau reconciliation agenda didn't just defeat that agenda, but also I think ultimately led to the revelations that we know about SNC-Lavalin. Exactly. And and that is, I think, you know, something I've never read anywhere else, something that other media figures have, have not, don't have the like uh, sources or relationships to actually talk about in a, in a kind of real way. And that's uh, something you're going to get in this book that you're not going to get anywhere else. There's also a couple other really good parts of your book that we don't have time to talk about, but that is... You know, the stuff on foreign policy, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Um, you know, I'm just going to read out a quote here just to tease it a little bit. Uh, This is speaking about arms sales to the Middle East under Justin Trudeau's kind of tenure as prime minister. There was such a boom in business, in fact, that Canada under Trudeau had become the second biggest weapons exporter to the Middle East after the United States. And that broadly speaking, the the kind of Canadian media has just largely ignored Canada's how complicit Canada is in the ongoing genocide in Yemen. Yeah, I would say actively suppressed. Yeah, and and that's that's just like a great part of the book. Read that part. Um, the other part, again, we don't have time to dive into is, you know, something that again speaks to Justin's passion and and um, for grand sweeping gestures gestures without any actual fucking follow through is you know his tweet on refugees and essentially everything that his government has done on refugees his cowardice on the safe third country agreement uh, how much he is fucked with refugees from Haiti you know there's so much focus yeah, on yeah I mean Canada Canada under Trudeau actually beat the Trump administration to lifting the ban on deporting Haitians back to uh, Haiti. So, like, when Haitians started fleeing the United States and trying to make asylum here, Canada had already been deporting Haitians back to Haiti. Yeah, and and there's kind of so much focus in the Canadian discourse on the horrors of the U.S. concentration camps and the kind of child kidnapping and rendering that's happening there. That there hasn't really been any self reflection on what Canada's militarized border regime slash like refugee regime has done to human beings and it is like there's a huge cost to human lives there that we just have never really reflected on and it is touched on in the book so please go buy it and read that part but the part that we are skipping ahead to is the final chapter and that is uh i mean i would characterize it as both you know a, a critique of the ndp and kind of what 
is to be done you know broadly speaking by social movements and the left to you know ensure that these these kind of like smooth talking marketing slickly marketed kind of faces of neoliberalism are defeated and and you make the case that the leap and the leap manifesto in the much maligned here in alberta was actually the beginning of you know a, a movement that eventually got kind of boomerang and eventually back to canada but inspired Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Green New Deal and all of the kind of organizing energy that went into that. Yeah, I mean, I think the leap was the first signs of nationally organized um, cracks in the neoliberal edifice in Canada, right? Um, And, you know, whether it happens under that name or whether you know, the, whether it happens under the Green New Deal, I think it definitely shows the pathway to overcoming um, and supplanting, like, liberal rule in Canada. Um, you know, Canadians, as we know from that, um, that forum, there was a forum research poll just a few weeks ago, it showed that 60% of Canadians are, have an open and positive attitude towards socialism, right? Like, that's huge. Um, I'm, like, old enough to know that to remember when, you know, like we would whisper, it was like a, socialism was a dirty word that we would like whisper in hushed tones at parties, right? The, cor- uh, the corollary to that though is that the exact same polling numbers favor capitalism and disapprove yeah, of socialism. Yeah, I think, that, I, think that's, I think that probably speaks to Canada's Canadians like being too polite. <laughs> um, but it just shows that like there is a huge openness and hunger for vastly more ambitious politics. Um, you know, we see those kinds of numbers showing up in support for, you know, taxation on the wealthy, uh, similar kinds of numbers, if not increased numbers, supporting a Green New Deal style program, you know, that brings back redistribution, um, you know, hikes taxes on the wealthiest, invests massively in, in the public sphere. I mean, people are ready for it, right? We're seeing it around the world. And I think that the NDP as was evidenced in their response to the leap when it basically won the convention in 2016. And since then has, uh, not really read the political temperature of the country. They're, they're, they're kind of missing it. Um, well, the, the federal NDP are, are always just kind of like seem to be five to 10 basis points behind where Canadians are on kind of social policy. And, you know, I, I, you were involved. I mean, we should get, we should say up front that you were involved kind of with the formation of the leap. I, I don't know how you characterize yourself as a co-writer. Or... Yeah. Co-author and one of the organizers. Yeah. And so just, just so that that's clear, you're not just like speaking about the leap academically, you were involved in its promulgation. And we were both at the 2016 federal NDP convention where both the leap was discussed and Mulcair was turfed. And that um, I mean, I wasn't very old at that point. We don't do federal politics. I was there either as an observer or a journalist. I can't remember. And it was an interesting moment. It was in exci- an exciting moment, right? Like you could feel on the convention. I mean, it was my first NDP convention. But what I heard from like, you know, elders of the party is that they hadn't, there hadn't been this kind of intellectual political buzz since like 
the Regina Manifesto. And that's what some, some of the elders told me, right? Like for so long, these conventions have been just these like highly choreographed affairs, right? Where no intellect ideas were actually debated. And there was a real sense on the floor that the rank and file of the NDP were hungry for a kind of like Bernie Sanders-esque turn for the party. Left-wing populism, baby. Left-wing populism, if you want to call it that. Um, Socialism, if you want to call it that. Um, Revitalize social democracy. I mean, whatever we call it, like, it's just evident that it's not just within the NDP, but across this country, people are ready to leap at those kinds of ideas. Yes. And and the reaction from both the kind of federal NDP firmament as well as the Alberta NDP was, it was, it was a, it was a, what's the best way to describe it? It was like an immune system reaction. They like shitstorm. They, they tried their hardest to kind of kill this, uh, I, these ideas and this manifesto and its crib. And, you know, on the reasoning that like this would hurt the Alberta NDP's eventual reelection, that, that the, the leap was a far too radical a document for, you know, the the pragmatic Alberta NDP to get behind blah, 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 blah. But when you actually crack open the leap, it's it's like what, 1,200, 1,300 words or something. It, it is like motherhood and apple pie stuff. Stuff that like, again, if you poll on, and you kind of talk about this in the book, if you poll on raising taxes on the wealthy, returning land to indigenous people, et cetera, et cetera, these ideas are quite popular and things that we should be doing. Again, like motherhood and apple pie stuff. And this is a common feature on the left. And I think you mentioned it in the book, like the, the maintenance of power, right? Like the people who tend to be at the top of these organizations aren't necessarily there for a wider political project. They're there because they're interested in maintaining the positions and power that they currently hold. Yeah. it's a, the, Some people call it the iron law of organizations. Um, you know, people who run the party are more invested in maintaining the power that they have in the party than they are in building the par- the the power of the party without. And that was a big, I think, part of why we saw that reaction from the NDP establishment, who I think share more with the establishments of the other parties than they do with the majority of people in Canada. Uh, that's my sense. And the class, class is a big part of that um, and being in the political bubble in Ottawa. Um, so many of them were, yeah, but they were more ready to, I think, uh, destroy the prospect of uh, us handing to them this recipe for electoral majoritarian success. Um, I mean, Milton puts it this way. He says, like, uh, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven, right? Like, these people were more interested in, in maintaining control over an NDP that would be, like, you know, a marginal political force in Canadian society than they were to potentially open the party to social movements and a much more unapologetically left-wing well, and to build, agenda. And to build a big, broad, popular political party. Exactly. I think they wouldn't have the control they have in the party that they, that they have now, right? So, and I think on the, on the, for the Alberta NDP, there, I think in part, it's this kind of like legacy of the Cold War, whereby social Democrats um, are just utterly terrified of anything from their left. Like they haven't learned the lessons that the right wing has, which is that it is always good to have uh, someone to your right to act as a kind of um, stalking horse for more radical ideas. And that's how you shift the political spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. You shift the gravity of the center. And the right wing has been very effective at doing that in this country for 30, 40 years. Um, 
And on the other hand, the NDP tends to perceive anything to their left as this like childish threat that needs to be like spanked out of existence. That will hurt their chances to get reelected. You're not taking politics seriously, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I actually, we actually had this conversation like after the, I remember right after the NDP convention, uh, Avi Lewis got a call from Brian Topp. And it was, Brian Topp was just like screaming his head off about how they were going to destroy the Leap Manifesto, right? And the pitch we made to him is we said, just why don't you think of us as like the radical pole and you guys can be the reasonable ones in the center and together we can shift the sense of what is politically possible. And that included like we could, you know, help you bring in experts from Germany, right? Where a comparable industrialized country like Canada has overseen the expansion of renewable energy to the point where you have a thousand co-ops providing local benefits, you have 400,000 jobs in green energy, um, and you have 30 to 40 percent of electricity being provided by renewables, right? Um, And they were like, no, we'd rather double down on pipelines, try to out-Tory the Tories, and we know what the consequences of that were. Yeah, and it's funny, that split between the Alberta NDP and the, the federal NDP still exists. They still hate each other. You know, Rachel Notley is not a door knocking for the federal NDP candidate in her writing. It is a it is it is a split that still exists to this day. And I think this this last chapter of yours does have some words that Alberta New Democrats need to read. So I would I mean everyone should read the book, go and read the last read the last chapter, especially it means you you're gonna complete the book. But that last chapter is ex- incredibly important. Okay, I think we got to end it with this final discussion point. Martin, you just wrote a book on Justin Trudeau. Um, did you not have him in blackface? Like, there's like 18 photos of him in blackface. Apparently, you spent a year and a half writing a book. What do you? What do you? What do you what's your excuse? <laughs> um, I actually uh, had heard of the blackface uh, episode. Uh, I had which, a, which one? <laughs> good question. Um, it's one I think that. Uh, hasn't necessarily been reported yet, though it probably is related to the third one where he's dressed in uh, fully in blackface and in a, a, a costume that he hasn't admitted to yet. Um, yeah, that, that one has the least amount of reporting and context around it. I don't know when that was. I don't know where that was. I don't know why. He's so what I know, what I heard from a source about a year and a half ago was that um, Trudeau had for a time worked at a whitewater rafting outfit in the Laurentians, about an hour north of Montreal, and probably in the 90s, late 90s, when he was in his 20s. And this place was like a real party mecca, where they used to have like parties every weekend in the summer. And if you, um, oh, I should say too, that it kind of has a kind of totally fitting colonial name. The place is called Nouveau Monde. So for your non-French listeners, that's the new world. Um, And I was told that if you kind of got in with the guys who work at this Outfitters, um, on certain nights, you would be led to like a back room at this this place. Uh, You'd have your phones and any recording devices confiscated, and they would slip in a video into the VHS, and you would get to see Trudeau uh, in blackface at one of their parties. Um, and I'm not just saying this is like, uh, maybe it's just sour grapes, but I, yeah, I made some effort to try to get uh, a hold of this video and, and couldn't manage it. And so ultimately I kind of dropped it. Um, and I'm glad it's out, um, because it does, you know, reveal important connections between, you know, the kind of elite culture 
in which he grew up that um, totally countenances making a mockery and disparaging, you know, marginalized people's cultures and identities. Um, but it's just a, it makes the connection to the the deeper racial structural inequalities that Trudeau's government has entrenched and advanced. He's always been very enthusiastic about costumes. <laughs> yeah, that's his line. <laughs> uh, I mean, I laugh about it. It is obviously and intrinsically horrific that this like clueless, privileged, dumb fucking jock has dressed up in blackface multiple times, and it, it and never and knew that this was coming. Like from what I understand, this had been known. I think since June or July that this this was in the hands of of opposition researchers. Right. I mean, if someone as as much an outsider as me had caught wind of it, I'm sure there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people who knew. Yeah, and and, and so it's yeah, yeah, it's 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 terrible. It's messed up. It's the politics of 2019. Okay, I think that's the entire show. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. Martin, how can people find you online and where can people find the book? I'm on Twitter uh, sporadically and they can order the book online at a reduced price at www.tudoformula.com. Cool. And how can people find you on Twitter? Oh, uh, Martin. And because I'm old fashioned underscore Lukacs. Sweet. All right. Well, thanks so much, Martin. If you like this show and want more people to listen to it, Go out and please share it. Um, you know, leave reviews at whatever kind of service you think uh, needs to hear about us. But just text the show to your friend. Just be like, hey, for, I just listened to this awesome show with Martin Lukacs, Dan Kinney. Um, just text the podcast. Say, listen to this. Um, you know, we're in September. It is still September. We are still in the middle of our fundraising drive. So please go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons if you want to support the work that we do and if you like us. And uh, also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments you think I need to hear, I'm on Twitter at Duncan Kinney. You can reach me by email at Duncan K at ProgressAlberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme. And goodbye. <laughs>